Now why don't we bow our heads and pray. Uh, loving Father, we pray that uh, uh, as we come to your word, uh, you would speak to us and speak to our hearts, our ears, our minds, uh, that you'd show us again the glory and wonder who is Jesus and that we would follow him in the way of repentance and faith. Uh, please make us more and more like Jesus so that you are more and more glorified. And we ask it in his precious name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 16. I want to start by asking the question, who do you say I am? Not me, but Jesus. It's a question that's put by Jesus in today's text. Uh, plenty of people have all sorts of things that they say about Jesus. Lots of different ideas, but not every idea about Jesus we hear is the real Jesus, I don't think. So, for example, some might say, oh, Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Uh, can you picture him with his high cheekbones, his blonde flowing hair, his uh, bright um, garments, uh, decidedly looking German. Have you seen that Jesus or heard about that Jesus? Or maybe it's hipster Jesus. Hipster Jesus, he was so cool, he had followers even before Twitter. <laughs> or, uh, you know, uh, or Jesus is my boyfriend, where he wants to wrap his arms around you as we sing about his intoxicating love. You might have heard about that one. Or there's open-minded Jesus. Open-minded Jesus... Uh, who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, well, except, of course, for people who are not as open-minded as you. That's, you heard that one? Uh, or there's Platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and really bad sermons. And he inspires people to believe in themselves and lifts us up so we can walk on mountains. Platitude Jesus. How about the spiritual Jesus who hates religion, church, pastors, priests and doctrine and wants us to find the God within as we listen to ambiguous sub-Christian music? My favourite out of this list is tomato sauce Jesus. Okay, It's the silliest one. and You might have heard me say this one at Nick's induction of all things, but I did this. Tomato sauce Jesus, where the label says, catch up with Jesus. Let us praise him and relish him because he loves me from my head to my toes. <laughs> Phil, have you died yet? You sounded like you were going to die. I mean, it's terrible, isn't it? It's just terrible. I mean, but as I ran through that list of things, you see how some of those examples are just a projection. Those ideas of Jesus are just a projection of ourselves. And a projection of our wants and our desires. But the Bible, uh, the Jesus of the Bible is something else. Uh, and so if we want the authentic Jesus, we must come to the Bible. So I ask the question again, this is the question of the text. Who do you say Jesus is? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, the answer, the question is answered. Notice verse 13 
Jesus comes to a place called Caesarea Philippi, uh, which is just north of Galilee. And this is where I have the wonderful excuse of saying, have I mentioned that I've been there? Okay, and if you're new, it's because you've heard it a few times before, the church family, and it's something that I like to uh, mention. I've, I've been there. Did I say that? Yeah, okay, I did say that. Uh, Caesarea Philippi, you can go to there today. So this is not a fairy tale place, it's a real place. Uh, built by Herod Philippi, a capital of his kingdom at the time. Very strategic place uh, in, the, in the map there. So by way of example... Uh, it's on the trade route that goes from Egypt, that follows the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, sort of, and goes up, cuts into to the north of Galilee and then up to Damascus. Massive, massive international trade route. And Caesarea Philippi is a stopping point, which means if it's an international trade route where everyone stops, you're going to have people of all sorts from all kinds of backgrounds stopping there. It's a busy place of trade. The other striking thing about this place is it's one big rock formation. Okay, this is a desert out here. There's a massive rocky outcrop and there's a massively big rock platform and you can go to this big cave and huge amounts of water once burst out of this cave and used to flow into the Jordan River, not so much anymore. Um, and as you can imagine, pluralism was rampant, rampant, uh, and we know what pluralism is, the worship of many gods. And so the Greeks built a temple to the god of nature, Pan, and Herod built a temple in tribute to Caesar. And it's, it's here amidst, can you see it, amidst all this idol worship, that Jesus comes here with his mates and he says, well, who do people say the son of man is? See verse 13. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And when Jesus talks about the Son of Man, he's pointing to Daniel chapter 7, that reading we heard first read out for us. Verse 13 in particular. The promised one. The promised one, the Son of Man who comes and um, uh, 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 comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days and he is given this Son of Man, he's given authority and glory and sovereign power and all people and all nations and men of every language worshipped him. Where are we? We're at Caesarea Philippi where you can absolutely bet it's cosmopolitan and there are people of all kinds of languages and backgrounds gathering. And here Jesus says, well, who is the Son of Man? And this Son of Man, he's going to have a dominion that's everlasting. It's not going to pass away. And as we heard from Daniel 7, it's a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And so what's the answer? Who is this son of man? We'll look at verse 14. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So some say this, some say that. And then verse 15, Jesus says, yeah, but what about you? And then he says, who do you say I am? See it? Jesus say, I'm the Son of Man. Who do you say I, uh, I am? And then we get uh, the, the answer from Peter. As Jesus presses, verse 15, verse 16 rather, Simon Peter answered, well, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
And as Peter launches with those words, we go, yay, Peter got it right. He gets it right. Uh, he scores. It's like he scored a goal. Success. He gets the gold star. In fact, you can see how clearly happy Jesus is because look what Jesus promises. Verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, where are they standing? I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he told his mates not to tell anybody that he was the Messiah. Here is Jesus amidst idolatry, standing on this ginormous rock that is Caesarea Philippi, uh, in, amidst, uh, in, a, in what would have been a, in an international environment. And Jesus says, I will build my church. Who is going to build the church? It's Jesus that's going to build the church, not the Apostle Peter, notice. Jesus is the builder. And here's a church that will prevail against all comers, even hell itself. His is an everlasting kingdom, remember? One that will never fade away. And then he says to Peter, and mate, that kingdom, let me give you the keys to it. We know what it's like when we have uh, successful people return home. We give them the keys to a town. They're rewarded. Have we ever done that in Inverell? I don't know if that's something we do in Inverell. Here, Peter is given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The binding and loosing uh, language here simply speaks to Peter's authority to decide what's allowed and what's not. Um, what's in, what's out. What sums up, what sums down. And so that when we get to Acts chapter 10, Peter exercises this kind of authority as the Gentiles are finally welcomed and included into Christ's church. And so there's a spiritual dimension. Peter gets to say the Gentiles, for a little while, I'm not sure they're in, I'm not sure they're in. No, they're in. Okay? And that has a spiritual dimension, because what happens here uh, does not... Uh, th there's a unity there going on with heaven too. And the everlasting kingdom is the program. And today, if you go to Caesarea Philippi, the remnants, the remnants of the temple dedicated to the Greek god Pan are still there in Caesarea and the remnants of the temple to Caesar are still there and you kind of look at it and you go, well, too bad if you devoted your life to either. Too bad. The Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the former powers are powerless. The remnants stand as monuments to tourists. It's a circus. But the Son of Man, the one we call Jesus, the Son of God, <laughs> today, millions the world over still gather. His church, here we are, doing what millions of Christians the world over are doing today on a Sunday as we worship the one we call Jesus. That's powerful, isn't it? Are you blown away by that? We're part of a kingdom 
that will never be destroyed. Which begs the question again, this question is eternally significant. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? As Christians, we belong to a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It won't pass away. And logically, you might think then that that must be true of the kingdom's king as well. That would make sense. And maybe that explains verse 21. And Peter and his little hissy fit. So you look at verse 21, 22 rather. Verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. But Peter takes him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Do you see it? How can the king of this kingdom ever be destroyed? Where's Daniel 7, Jesus? Uh, in Peter, in his vision of the Messiah, there's no room for suffering and rejection and death. It cannot be the way that the one with all the supreme power and authority, the king of the everlasting kingdom, would experience suffering, rejection and death. But here comes the rejection. Verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. See, a vision that has no space for rejection, suffering and death of Jesus has its origin with Satan. And so Jesus says, get behind me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but only human concerns. Now, why the rebuke? It's pretty stern, isn't it? I mean, he got the gold star before. He's getting an absolute fail right now. You can't get any greater fail than to say, get behind me, Satan. That's, that's, uh, that's terrible. But why the rebuke? Why is Jesus so strident here? And we should know the answer, shouldn't we? Because we know that without the road of suffering, rejection and death, we know there's no resurrection. Because without blood shed, there's no forgiveness of sins. You can't be forgiven unless Jesus goes down the path of suffering, rejection and death. Why? Because it's the Father's will to crush him and to bring this suffering. It's the Father's will that Christ might die as an atoning sacrifice. But not only a sacrifice that deals with sin and wipes it away, but a sacrifice that turns God's wrath aside. A propitiatory sacrifice. A guilt offering once and for all for our sins. And this is why Jesus came. Jesus is the Son of God who came to suffer, be rejected and died for you. This glorious son of man that we got a glimpse of in Daniel 7 and that you can glimpse again in chapter 17, the very next chapter with the transfiguration, the king of the everlasting kingdom is the very same king that died for you. 
And this is important for our question of who Jesus is. Because any view of Jesus that says otherwise has its origins with the devil. So who do we say Jesus is? Was was Jesus just a great teacher? Was he just a prophet? A miraculous healer? A good bloke? A role model? Is that who Jesus was? Jesus is the son of God who came to die for sinners and he came to suffer and to be rejected and to die for you and for me. But what follows is a bit of a shock. I mean, I think we can get our head around that. But here's the shock. It's like a cattle prod, what follows. I hope you're ready. Because what goes for Jesus the King goes for those who follow him. Do you see what follows in verse 24? Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Uh oh. Do you see the trajectory of our text this morning? One moment, Jesus is the Son of God, yes, hallelujah, all praise. Then he says, Jesus has come to be rejected, suffer, and die. And Peter says, no. But Jesus says, yes. And we go, yeah, yeah, Peter, it's yes. But now Jesus says, what's good for me, what goes for me, Goes for you, goes for those who follow me. And we might go and put our hands on the hip and go, well, so much for the victorious Christian life. To take up one's cross is to join in the road of suffering, rejection and death. Jesus doesn't offer an alternative path. And no one would know this truth better than the apostles, the disciples, who go and take this good news to the world. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes a little bit about it, I think in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. As we think about what it means to follow Jesus on the road of suffering, rejection and death, the Apostle Paul writes about offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. A true spiritual act of worship where we give ourselves fully and wholly in service to God and in service to one another. And you might be thinking, well, what does that look like? For some, it will mean leaving careers and even family, just as the disciples did. For others, it means being committed to their church family and serving simply by turning up, gladly with joy. For others, for the proud... It's going to mean renouncing the desire to be right or renouncing the desperate need for attention, for status or honour. For the greedy, it'll mean renouncing an appetite for wealth. For the complacent, it means renouncing a love for ease and indifference. The faint-hearted will abandon their craving for security The violent will give up their desire for revenge. And the entitled, can you imagine this? The entitled will actually give up their rights and their sense of entitlement. And the easily offended, the victim, will instead be bridge builders 
and willing to forgive and maybe even to apologise themselves. Apologising never costs nothing, does it? It's to count the cost, to be sacrificial, to be willing to serve for the sake of the gospel. See, it's easy, isn't it, to say that I'm a Christian? I'm a Christian. Anybody can say that. Uh, And there are many that say they are Christians. But Peter shows us the danger of words. Words without understanding. Jesus shows us that the path of the Christian is to follow Jesus in the path of the cross. Of course, there are many who don't want to agree with Jesus at this point. People instead want to follow Jesus on their own terms, according to what suits them and what accommodates their sensibilities, and they'll worship the Jesus of their own making. But Jesus is saying there's only one way for a Christian to be a Christian, and that's his way, because he sets the terms, not us. And he calls us to willingly take up our cross and to follow him, to willingly count the cost as he did and does. The Apostle Paul understood it like this. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it says this. He writes, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying that he's he's dead and that he's been made alive in Christ. Romans 6, if you're a good Bible flicker, turn to Romans chapter 6 with me now. That'd be great. Romans chapter 6, it'll be worth it. And I love that sound of pages turning. That's exciting because it reminds me that you're not asleep. You're still with me, which is great. Romans chapter 6, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, What do we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means we are those who have died to sin. How can we live it any longer? Do you see that? We've died to sin. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Do you see that? Do you see what baptism is? It's not about the water. It's about you dying, your old self has died, and now you're identifying with Jesus. See, look at verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism. See, your union with him. You were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. For we have been united with him in a death like this. We will certainly also be united him in a resurrection like this. That's the good news. 4, verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Kel Butler, 2,000 years ago on a cross, was crucified to sin. He died to sin. Tim Appleby. 2,000 years ago, he died to sin. He was crucified to sin. The old self died. And he bore witness to that truth by getting a pull and going under and coming up again. 
He said, Jesus is my Lord and Saviour. Here is the truth of the Christian. Your old self was crucified on a cross. You have died to your old nature. Verse 7, because anyone who has died, here it is, you've been set free from sin. Here is the reality. And so verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And so in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your body. Do you see it? The Christian is somebody who has done this. They've declared Jesus to be the Son of God. They know he came to suffer, to be rejected and to die for our sins. And so now the Christian declares, you know, my old self is dead. I died. I've died to sin. Christ's death on the cross was my death. He died for me. He died as me. And now he lives in me and he lives through me. And so the death we die is the death to our sinful nature, such that it is no longer that I live, but it is Christ who lives in me and through me. We count ourselves dead to sin, which means our lives are no longer characterised by sin. We do not live in a pattern of sin. And so taking up our cross isn't a pain-free bed of roses. We're going to put to death greed in our life, aren't we? We're going to put to death greed because this is what Jesus died for. I can't go back to greed. I'm going to put to death materialism. I'm going to put to death sexual immorality and adultery. I'm not going to live in that pattern of life anymore. I'm going to keep the marriage bed pure because Jesus died for that. He died for my sins. So I can't go back to that because the cost of that was his death. So why would I? Or coveting. Or slander. Or gossip. Or bitterness. Or anger. Or substance abuse. Or alcoholism. Or a lack of self-control. Or selfishness. Or the golden oldie, pride. The preacher says pride. He knows he gets everybody with that, including himself. We are to rid our lives of such things because Jesus has died for such things. So as we think about the question of who Jesus is, who do you say Jesus is, is there a pattern of sin in your life that is inconsistent with the faith you profess. Because unless we are willing to walk this path of suffering, rejection and even death, for Christ's sake, Jesus is saying we'll have no part with him. What a great comfort it is to know that Jesus has already walked the path perfectly for us what joy and certainty it should give us. 
that for those who are in Christ, those who are willing to walk the path, there is no condemnation. Those joined to him at the hip who tread the path he's trod out before us. And where does this path lead? Where does the path of suffering, rejection and death lead? It leads to the resurrection. It's the whole point. It leads to the resurrection, the everlasting kingdom, the kingdom that will never fade away. Look at verse 25. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Sorry, that was the first 24. Verse 25. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. See, if you go for self-preservation, then we're backing away from eternal riches. Verse 26. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If you go for self-preservation, if you choose this world and its values, it will cost you more. This is what Jesus is saying. You might be sitting here this morning thinking, the way of Jesus, the cost is too great, Adam. You might think, no, I don't want to follow Jesus in the path of suffering, rejection and death. But if that is the path we choose, it's going to cost us more in the long run. It'll cost you more. And you'll be no better off than the Greeks and the Romans who have since faded into obscurity. No better off. Verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he'll reward each person according to what they've done. See, how have we responded to Jesus, the Son of God? We must side with Jesus now, even if it means suffering, rejection and death and humiliation, or we will not be by his side in the glorious age to come. That's the warning. And so I ask you again, who do you say Jesus is? Not just with your words, but with your very life, with your heart. As you examine your heart, as you think about your life, what do our words, our actions, our choices, our hearts, our very lives, how do they bear witness to the wonderful truth that Jesus is the Son of God who's come to save sinners? Who do you say Jesus is? It's to declare with one's mouth, but also with one's very life, that Jesus is the Son of God. Come to save sinners, such as his love and such as his grace. Such that it's easy, really easy to know who you say Jesus is. I know who you say Jesus is. See, it is your life saver. Is it true in your heart that your heart reeks of a love and devotion to Jesus and that warmth touches the lives of others that they might know Jesus, the one who loves them, the one who died for them, the one that promises them resurrection and glory, all that joy that we have. Amen.